Good morning. Welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. It's uh, good to see everyone this morning as we're uh, approaching spring. And today, of course, is uh, St. Patrick's Day. So a few people are wearing green. Some of you forgot. We'll talk about that in a minute. The only announcement I have is the April 13th uh, garage sale for Camp Arete. And, of course, for the deacons, this coming Saturday morning we'll be having uh, a deacons meeting. Scripture teaches that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all members of the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ that is composed of all believers from the birth of the church, which was on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, up to the time that the Lord Jesus Christ returns for the church in the air at what is known as the rapture of the church. But the church meets locally in local bodies around the world in different locales for the purpose of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping God who provided us with the perfect salvation through Jesus Christ and to be reminded and taught and instructed about who the Lord Jesus Christ is and all that we have in him as believers in Christ. Our Lord taught before he, you know, before the crucifixion when he was upon the earth, at the, when he was having his uh, conversation with the woman at the well in John 4, that a time would coming, was coming when there was going to be a shift, a dispensational shift from uh, the people of God worshiping at a specific set uh, individual location, which was in Jerusalem at the temple, to where it would be diversified and the, the focus would shift and the focus would be uh, worshiping on the basis of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and worshiping on the basis of truth, which is the Word of God. To worship on the basis of the Holy Spirit is consistent with the idea of walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, walking in the truth, being filled by means of the Spirit, as we're taught in Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians and a number of other passages. When we sin, we're out of fellowship. We break fellowship with God. We're no longer walking by the Spirit, but walking according to the sin nature. Scripture teaches that the only way of recovery is to confess sin. To make sure that we are in fellowship with God, therefore, we begin every service with a time of confession, a time of silent prayer, so that people can make sure that they are in fellowship and ready to uh, worship the Lord, and to focus upon his word. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come together this morning in order to put our focus and attention upon you, to get our focus off of the details of our lives, the both the good as well as the difficult, to put our attention upon you as the ultimate source of stability and happiness and joy in our life. Father, we know that the only path to real joy and happiness is through the study and application of your word, knowing how to walk as you would have us to walk, to live as you would have us to live. Father, we pray that today as we gather together that we might uh, be freed of the distractions of the circumstances of our lives and be able to focus our attention upon you. And Father, we pray for those who are not here this morning. Some are still traveling due to spring break. Others are ill. 
Father, we pray for them for their recovery. We pray especially for those who are fighting serious life-threatening diseases that their uh, lives may be a testimony to your grace and that you might give their doctors wisdom to uh, heal them, that they might recover uh, from these diseases. But above all, we pray that whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we think, we glorify you in all of our lives, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our opening hymn, number 277, The Church's One Foundation. Number 277, please stand. Our scripture reading this morning is in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. You may turn in your Bible and read along with me as I read them out loud. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Before we go to our second hymn, we change the hymn from the one that we had we have in the bulletin due to the fact that today is St. Patrick's Day. Now, there's a lot of silliness and nonsense that goes along with St. Patrick's Day. We have all these uh, St. Patrick's Day parades. We have green beer. And there was even a group of... Uh, uh, of Jews who eventually immigrated to uh, Manhattan by way of Ireland, a couple of generations living in Ireland, who used to have a, a regular meeting and they had green matzo ball soup. <laughs> All kinds of things that go on. Well, <clears throat> there is a, some truth to the story of St. Patrick. He was a great Christian missionary who lived in the 5th century A.D. But a lot of what is said about St. Patrick, even a lot of the very ancient stories of him are wrapped up in a lot of, uh, a lot of legends and a lot of lore that, that you really can't believe. And most, uh, most historians, most biblical or Christian historians, uh, cast a lot of doubt on a lot of the stories about the magic, about the uh, uh, miracles and, and some of the uh, supernatural contests that were said to have occurred between Patrick and some of his pagan uh, druid opponents. But the core of the story is that when Patrick, a Roman Christian a Roman of Roman descent, he was a Briton, that is, he lived on the Isle island of Britain, and um, when he was 16 years old, Patricius, as he was born, 
was captured by Irish uh, raiders who came to the shore of England frequently in order to plunder and to capture slaves. He was taken back to uh, Ireland where he became a slave for six years before he escaped. When he escaped, he was able to uh, stow away on a <clears throat> on a merchant ship from Gaul, that's modern France, and he made his way to Gaul, and from there he uh, found his way probably to a monastery and came under the tutelage of one of the uh, great uh, missionary Christians of that century, Martin of Tours. Uh, Patrick was born or was born into a Christian home and was raised as a Christian, but his Christianity didn't mean much to him, like so many people, until he hit adversity. He records in his autobiography, known as the Confessions of St. Patrick, that he would pray a hundred times during every day while he was a slave and a hundred times every night. So suddenly the uh, biblical teaching that he had received as a child and as a as a uh, young man uh, began to be real, very real to him. And when he came to escape, finally, he found his way to a monastery uh, where he uh, determined that uh, through, allegedly, through various visions that he had, um, that he would go back to Ireland as a missionary. When he first arrived, he met a lot of opposition, and then he left that area due to the intense opposition and moved to the north, to the area of Ulster, where he discovered a strategy for evangelism that is really one that has been followed by many people down through the ages, and that was to go to the leaders, to go to the men, to go to the chiefs of the various clans, and to uh, challenge them with the gospel. And if they trusted in Christ, then he would uh, have a hearing among those clans and, and those tribes, which he did. And so he, con he is said to be the one to have con responsible for the conversion of much of Ireland to Christianity. The long-term results of his ministry were that uh, within a 100 years, a man named uh, Columbanus uh, came to the Lord and established a monastery on an island called Iona, which was between Ireland and England, and it is from that base at Iona that uh, hundreds of men were trained in, this, in the scriptures and in Christianity, and missionaries went to Scandinavia, went to uh, Scotland to take the gospel to the Scots and the Picts, and went to England. So that the original form of Christianity that came to Ireland and to England was a earlier form, a more biblical form of Christianity, and was not influenced by what was already shifting uh, in Rome and would later come to be known as Roman Catholicism. And it wasn't until after the conquest of the Normans under William the Conqueror that a uh, compromise was reached between the Roman Church, which was brought by William, and the earlier English Church. One of the great um, conflicts that occurred between uh, Patrick and one of the Irish uh, chieftains uh, took place on a, uh, at the time of Easter. We're near Easter now, Resurrection Day. And it was uh, at this particular uh, time that no one was to light a fire or the candles of Easter according to the uh, commandment of this uh, 
particular chieftain, but the uh, but Patrick went to this mountain that was called Slain, S L A N E, not S L A I N, but S L A N E, which was uh, the location of a a druid worship center, and there he lit uh, candles for Easter in violation of the um, of the law. And as a result of his willingness to take a stand for, for truth, uh, eventually this, um, this chieftain became a, a Christian. There was a folk tune that was written about a hundred years later to commemorate that event and that, uh, that, or a folk song. And the tune that was used for that was no, known as Slain, S-L-A-N-E. And that became the tune for a, ancient hymn that we're getting ready to sing called Be Thou My Vision. This was a poem that was written in Gaelic. It was not translated into English until uh, the early part of the 20th century. It's a hymn that we have sung many times, but we don't always know the stories behind these hymns. The, uh, the, for, for centuries, the Irish learned this poem, which I will read to you. Uh, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. None other is aught but the king of the seven heavens. Be thou my meditation by day and night. May it be that, may it be thou that I behold even in my sleep. Be thou my speech. Be thou my understanding. Be thou with me. Be I with thee. Be thou my father. Be I thy son. Mayst thou be mine. May I be thine. Be thou my battle shield. Be thou my sword, be thou my dignity, be thou my delight. Be thou my shelter, be thou my stronghold. Mayst thou raise me up to the company of the angels. Be thou every good to my body and soul. Be thou my kingdom in heaven and on earth. Be thou solely chief love of my heart. Let there be none other, O high king of heaven till I am able to pass into thy hands my treasure, my beloved, through the greatness of thy love. Be thou alone my noble and wondrous estate. I seek not men nor lifeless wealth. Be thou the constant guardian of every possession and every life, for our corrupt desires are dead at the mere sight of thee. Thy love in my soul and in my heart Grant this to me, O King of the seven heavens. O King of the seven heavens, grant me this, thy love to be in my heart and in my soul, with the King of all, with him after victory won by piety. May I be in the kingdom of heaven, O brightness of the sun. Beloved Father, hear, hear my lamentations. Timely is the cry of woe of this miserable wretch. O heart of my heart, whate'er befall me, O ruler of all, be thou my vision. It was not after the translation of that into English in 1905, Eleanor Hull uh, devised a metrical poetic version of that translation into the verses that we sing in the hymn, hymn number 382, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. When we sing many of the hymns we sing that are more ancient than others, it's an opportunity for us to join together with a crowd of believers who have gone before us.
to enter into the experience of those earlier generations, and it connects us with others in the body of Christ. Uh, there's a trend today that uh, many sing only newer songs, only hymns written in the last, or choruses written in the last 20 or 30 years. And this is sad because it, it, it leads to a shallowness of our perception in relation to the body of Christ. The body of Christ isn't just believers today, but believers of all ages. And when we sing the hymns that were written that came out of their experiences, their experiences are the same as ours. And this allows us to connect across the centuries and to honor those experiences and the spiritual uh, lives uh, and and growth of those other believers in in many ways. And so it's... uh, Tremendous privilege for us. And this is a great hymn, and the words are are, uh, significant. Think about them as we sing them. Number 382, please stand. Scripture teaches that part of our worship is giving. We'll touch on that a little bit in, in our passage in Proverbs 3 this morning. Giving is to be a response of our soul to the grace that God has given us. God has given us in his grace everything we need in the Christian life and everything for life and godliness, as, as the Apostle Peter wrote in First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We're to honor God or glorify him through our giving, This is an emphasis from the Old Testament through the New Testament, and it's a tremendous way in which we demonstrate our response to his grace as well as our support for the teaching of God's word in the local church as well as through our missionaries that we support. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we are indeed so very grateful for your grace to us in giving us a salvation dependent not upon who we are, not upon what we do, but upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that that salvation is a free gift, and we simply accept it. And it is on this basis of grace that we understand the worship of giving, that giving is a way in which we just freely give without expecting anything in return, without giving in order with the idea that somehow that motivates your your blessing in our lives, but that we give simply for the privilege and the, to honor and glorify you through our gifts. And we ask, Father, that you bless these gifts. In Christ's name, amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer to ask his guidance and direction on our study of his word. Father, the scriptures declare that what we have in scripture reflects your mind, the mind of Christ. And as we study your word, that we come to understand who you are, we come to understand your plan and purposes for the human race and your plan and purpose for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as members of the body of Christ. And Father, we pray now that as we take this time to focus upon your word, to reflect upon what you have uh, revealed to us, and preserved for us, that it might be used by God the Holy Spirit to challenge us, to correct us, and to instruct us in the path of righteousness, that we might be uh, able to grow as we take in your word, and that we might glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, I was away at, I guess, at my dad's uh, memorial service, up or funeral burial service up at Arlington, came back and skipped a whole chapter in Proverbs and uh, <clears throat> discovered that afterward. But that Sunday morning, I taught on Proverbs 3, 1 through 5. Now we're back in Proverbs 3, 1 through 5, except today we're going to go ahead and cover uh, the first 12 verses in Proverbs chapter 3. The thing we should focus on when we think about Proverbs and as we go through this study is that Proverbs present for us challenges, challenges to our volition. Volition is a word meaning our will. Uh, Proverbs challenges the choices that we make. In fact, Proverbs is all about choices. Are we going to choose the path of divine wisdom or are we going to choose the path of human wisdom? Are we going to follow the path that seems right to man? But the scripture says, though it appears right to us, the end is death. Or are we going to follow the path of divine revelation? What's the ultimate authority in our life? And is that the word of God or is that our peers or is that our uh, own feelings or emotions or our just our own desires? Or are we truly committed to the authority of God in our life so that we are going to put his word first and foremost above everything else, above our feelings, above our friends, above our family, above our previously uh, cherished opinions and ideas. We need to follow the path of wisdom Proverb, the writer of Proverbs says, for only by following the path of wisdom, which is the word of God, Bible doctrine, the teaching of God's word, only by following God's word can we really have life. What happens when we follow a substitute is it eventually ends up in self-destruction. It ends up in a, in a death-like existence. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it just confirms you in your own, uh, in, in, in your own sin nature and your own sinful desires. Some reminders for us as we enter into the third chapter is that 
we need to reflect on this whole concept of choice. We have choice. We have decisions to make every day. You wake up in the morning and you have decisions to make, whether or not to hit that snooze button or not. Uh, you have decisions to make about what to have for breakfast. You have decisions whether or not you're going to make it to that workout class at 5.30 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. or whether uh, or not whether you're going to just indulge your desires and sleep in a little extra. We have choices throughout the day. Some of them, many of them, are what appear to be insignificant choices. We choose who we will talk to on the phone. We choose who we will have lunch with, who we will have dinner with. We choose who we will listen to on the radio or on the television, who we allow into our minds to influence us. We make all kinds of choices, and many of them do not seem to be volitionally significant at the time in which we make the choice. But we all know that there are many choices we have made in life that have significantly impacted things. We might make a choice to go to avoid some traffic one morning and take a detour and have an accident. And the repercussions of that accident may be significant and serious just because we decided that instead of sitting in line in traffic, we decided to go another way and take another route. Seemed like an insignificant choice at the time, but it had uh, significant ramifications. We may decide to go on a trip somewhere, and we get on an airplane, and we're exposed to somebody with some sort of contagious disease, and it may have significant consequences in our life. We never know, and we never can know because of the uh, finitude of our minds, the consequences of many of the choices we make. Now, there are significant choices that we do make, choices that are uh, that relate to obedience to God or disobedience to God, and we know that when we live a life, when we are walking according to our sin nature and disobedience to God, that that is going to have uh, uh, negative consequences and consequences of self-destruction. But many decisions we make just don't appear to be that significant. They don't appear to be uh, morally significant. They don't appear to be spiritually significant. But even the most uh, minor of decisions may have, uh, may entail great con- uh, consequences. So choices result in consequences. But what this chapter teaches at the core verse, which is a promise uh, that many of us know and have memorized, uh, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Speaks of a commitment, a prior commitment, to seek our security and stability only in God. And no matter what else happens, because we are focused on walking by the Spirit and applying the Word of God in our life and trusting God above everything else, that no matter what else happens in terms of these minor apparently inconsequential decisions, God is the one who is going to work out the path of our life and direct the path of our life with that uh, sort of unseen sovereign control of God so that whatever happens, even when we make what appear to be insignificant decisions that result in 
some sort of catastrophic suffering or adversity, we know that God is in control and that we can trust him because we are uh, ultimately committed to him and uh, to his to his word. So the writer of Proverbs, speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and thus speaking God's word to us, informs us that though we can't determine or foresee the consequences of many of our decisions, what's important is the framework of those decisions and submitting to the authority of God in the process of our life, the progress of our life, and thinking in terms of the absolute truth of God's word. Now, as we come to this third chapter in the opening uh, prologue of Proverbs, as I've said before, the first nine chapters give us an introduction to uh, this book. Uh, these are not individual proverbs, although portions of, the, uh, of these chapters contain some. The proverbs proper really begins with chapter 10, verse 1, once again restating that this is the proverbs of, of Solomon. So chapter 3 takes us to sort of the next level in the instruction of the father to the son. The father's words are given to the son, and he uh, addresses him through a series of of lessons, this is the third in that series of lessons, uh, indicated usually by the phrase, my son. Almost every time we see this, with a few exceptions, there is a start of a new lesson. We see in chapter 3, verse 1, my son, do not forget my law. Now he's going to repeat the phrase, my son, in verse 11, but I think for various uh, stylistic and and, uh, uh, grammatical reasons, 11 and 12 basically forms... Uh, an, sort of an antithetical conclusion to these first uh, ten verses. The first ten verses emphasize some things about what will happen to the son positively as a result of obedience to God's word, whereas verses 11 and 12 are a reminder that when there is disobedience, there will be divine correction and divine discipline. The idea of divine discipline is expressed in the first line, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. There it comes across as a negative, but it is not necessarily a negative in the original Hebrew. It's the word musar, which is also used in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 3, to receive the instruction of wisdom. Instruction is how it's translated in that third verse of the uh, opening introduction, and that is because the idea of Masar is a disciplined curriculum of training. It involves uh, negative discipline as well as positive discipline, uh, taking our um, unrestrained desires and and forcing them into a framework of obedience and training and instruction. So we should not despise the training of the Lord. Sometimes it seems restrictive, sometimes it's punitive, but its focus is to train us and direct us in a course of life that will result in a fullness of life on our part and the opportunity to honor and, and glorify God on the other. Now, as we looked at Proverbs chapter 2, the focus there was on a challenge to the son to make the study of God's word the highest priority in his life. 
The first four verses express this. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. And here we see a pattern where there's a commandment given and then the reason for that commandment given in the next verse. Uh, Verse 3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So find favor and high esteem. Excuse me, I'm reading from chapter 3. Chapter 2, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for hers for hidden treasures. What we see here in these four verses is the condition to seek, to search, to make the Word of God the highest priority. That's the challenge to the Son. The result of that is given uh, in verse 5, then you will understand uh, the fear of the Lord and find uh, the knowledge of God, and then it's repeated again in verse 9, then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. So two results are given. One, understanding the fear of the Lord. Two, uh, finding the knowledge of God. Knowledge about God is not just academic truth, not just study, studying a course in theology proper. It is coming to know God through a study of his word, but in a personal way, so that we develop a relationship with him. The result of that then, second result of that, is verse 9, an understanding of righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. I want you to notice in a lot of discussion related to uh, social issues today, where people think in terms of what is right and what is wrong, the Word of God says that what is right and what is wrong has its source in the Word of God, not in public opinion, not in polls, not in cultural trends. I'm sure many of you noticed this last week that the Roman Catholic Church uh, chose a new leader, a new pope. What was interesting, somewhat nauseating as well, was to listen to a lot of the media interviews leading up to and following the selection of this pope uh, in terms of how he would respond to the issues that the media deemed important, especially to American women. Well, is this going to be a pope that is going to be responsive to the, to the needs, the desires of, of women as defined by American pop culture in terms of where feminism has led us in this, in this country? And that is, and, and so their whole idea is that somehow culture and different cultural beliefs and popular beliefs should shape the policy of a religion. And I use the term religion in terms of Roman Catholicism because it's not biblical Christianity, but we do share as Protestants, as Bible believers, we do share certain beliefs, and that is that the Word of God is revealed objectively from God himself, and it reflects an absolute uh, of God's standards. 
and therefore it is not uh, up for debate. It's not to be revised. It's not to be reinterpreted because it's not popular today because culture has, in many ways, has rejected the absolutes of God's word. And in post, the postmodern beliefs of, uh, of America today and in much of the West, uh, truth is determined by whatever a person thinks works, whatever a person thinks is true. They can believe any number of things. It doesn't matter how irrational it might be. As long as it's, they sincerely believe it, it's fine, and there's no such thing as an absolute. And if anybody questions or uh, criticizes or critically evaluates what somebody else believes, then they've committed the worst social sin of modern of the modern world because they're saying that somebody can be wrong, and we don't want anybody to suffer from a poor self-image and think they're wrong. Um, and so we anybody who criticizes someone else for their especially moral choices or relational choices, therefore is committed the worst sin. And so these have become classified as hate crimes. And uh, we saw another egregious thing happen this last week in that the Supreme Court of Canada uh, made a ruling in a case that has been going up through their court system for the last uh, 10 or 11 years related to <clears throat> does the Bible have the right to uh, condemn homosexuality as sin. Notice the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuals any more than it condemns thieves and liars and adulterers and gossipers and slanderers. They're all sins. And uh, as such, we commit those. We have to admit that they're sins. But now we have a protected class of individuals, a minority group that has uh, wielded enough um, uh, power socially to where they want their particular class of sin to no longer be classified as sin and to be given the uh, validation of of state law and in some states and i 'm using the term state in terms of a nation, and so some nations have declared that anyone who condemns homosexuality as sin or even quotes the Bible, for example, passages like first Corinthians six that declare homosexuality, among many other things, to be sin, uh, that anyone who even cites those biblical passages has committed a hate crime so that no longer do we have law, even at the highest levels of law in Canada, in England, and some other nations, law is no longer seen as something that is an absolute, but it is something that is completely fluid, something that can be shaped and reshaped from generation to generation. And so this is, the, uh, <clears throat> this is uh, one of the problems that we face today is that we want to redefine everything in terms of our own experience. But what the Bible teaches is that the Word of God is the source of absolute truth, and therefore we must submit to it. Otherwise, we are on the path to death and destruction. So the writer of Proverbs starts off emphasizing that we should seek the Word of God as our first and highest priority, and only when we do so can we truly understand uh, God, number one, and number two, can we truly understand righteousness and justice? So as long as we live in a world that rejects God's Word, we will see more and more 
injustice and unrighteousness coming from the uh, courts of our various uh, nations. We see a logical progression develop in um, in these verses as we go through Proverbs chapter 2 to where we see the result of making God's word and therefore God the highest priority in our life, where we're told in verse 8 that he, that is a reference to God, guards the paths of justice in verse 8 and preserves the way of his saints. Now it's interesting that in Proverbs 2.11, just three verses later, we have those same words repeated. And the King James, they translated the second word, which is shamar. They translated it as preserves in verse 8 and uh, watch in verse 11, but it's the same word. And, um, and it emphasizes that in verse 8, it is God who guards and protects. And in verse 11, it is the wisdom that God gives that guards and protects. So God guards and protects us through his particular word. Now, I emphasize that because these same words show up again as we get into uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. There, at the beginning, the writer says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. And there's the word uh, natsar, which is the word for uh, preserve uh, that we had earlier in uh, verse Eight and chapter two, verse eight and verse eleven, to preserve, to uh, protect. Let your heart keep or protect my commandments. Now, I want you to notice something as we just kind of do a flyover on these first twelve verses. That what we have here in Proverbs three one through twelve is an interesting organization. The odd number verses present the command, and the even number verses present the results of the command, the positive results of the command. So verse 1 reads, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. And the result is that length of days and long life and peace will be added to you. Verse 3, we get the positive command. Don't let mercy or truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What's the result? Verse 4 is the blessing. So find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Uh, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. There's the command. Um, continues at 6a, in all your ways acknowledge him. The positive result, he will uh, direct your life, direct your paths. Uh, verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be arrogant. For the Lord, uh, Fear the Lord and depart from evil. What's the result? It will bring you health. And uh, physical strength, verse 8. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase. What's the result is you will be prosperous. Your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will overflow with new wine. And verse 11 uh, is a warning. If we are disobedient, God will bring discipline and punishment or correction, uh, rebuke into our lives and what is the blessing is that he shows his love to us. So it's important to note that structure. You have a command with a result of blessing stated in the, in the subsequent verses. Now, we've already covered verses 1 through 4, but I want to pick up again at verse 5. Trust in the Lord 
with all your heart. So let's skip a couple of verse slides here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. So this is what's a, a, a parallelism here uh, that is based on opposites. The positive is stated in the first line. The negative is stated uh, in the second line. So we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart. And in, in contrast, we are not to lean upon our own understanding. Now, this initial phrase, trust in the Lord, is a phrase that needs to be clarified and understood. Too often we uh, superficially respond to people's uh, prayer requests or stated needs or circumstances in life by just sort of blithely saying, well, trust the Lord. It's sort of been reduced to a uh, bumper sticker type of slogan that is too, easy, too easily just falls off of our tongue without stopping and thinking about its significance. The Hebrew word that is translated trust here is the word batach, which has the idea of expressing confidence or security in something. It is most often used in Scripture to express what we're not supposed to express our confidence in, but in some key passages in the Psalms and Proverbs, it expresses our confidence in God. Our confidence is supposed to be in, in the Lord. And I notice there's a shift here from Elohim in verse um, 4, where it just talks the sort of the generic term of God, to a focus on Yahweh, indicated in your English Bibles, usually translated with the uh, small caps of Lord. Uh, to an emphasis on God as the covenant God, the faithful covenant-keeping God of, of Israel. And so that is to be the focus, the one in whom we put our trust. And when we read the word uh, to, be, to put our trust in the Lord, we need to think of all that he is in terms of his attributes. I think that this is one of the uh, most significant aspects of of learning how to trust God or what we often refer to as the faith rest drill where we're mixing faith with the promises of God is that as we read the Psalms, the psalmist often faces his problems in the lament Psalms and then in contrast to looking at the negatives of his circumstances, he begins to focus upon the character of God. God's faithfulness, God's loyal love, his chesed love, his faithful, loyal love, his grace, his goodness, his righteousness, his justice. And as the psalmist focuses upon those eternal attributes of God, then he settles down. His emotions are calmed. Uh, he focuses on that which has eternal stability rather than the chaos of his circumstances and the end result is he is able then to relax in the midst of his circumstances, and he is able then to praise God despite his circumstances and whatever those situations or circumstances or events uh, might be. So we are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Now, the word heart in Hebrew is used, as well as in, in the New Testament, the word heart there is used in a different way than, than it is often used in everyday English. Often the word heart, when people talk about um, 
that they keep somebody in their heart or they love somebody with their heart or something of that nature. They, what they mean is their emotions. But that's not the Hebrew idea. The Hebrew idea, more often than not, has to do with their mind. It really focuses on the very center of something, such as we would talk about the heart of a matter. We're talking about the core of an issue. We talk about hearts of palms. You go down to the store and you buy a jar of hearts and palms to put in your salad. This is what comes from the center of the plant. So, so heart has to do metaphorically with the very center, the very core of something. And what is at the very core of our being are our beliefs, our, our, our thinking. It, it's the rational part of man. And so we're to trust in the Lord. That's a, as a command that is addressed to our volition. We have to make a decision as to whether or not we are going to entrust ourselves to him. And we are to do it with our whole heart, with all of our thought processes, all of our thinking, everything within our mind. It's not talking about our whole being. It's talking about the center of our being that is our thought system because it's out of the heart that is the thought systems of man that come the issues of life. This is the very center of our soul. So we're to trust in the Lord with every aspect of our thinking. And in contrast, we're not to lean on our own, and look at that last word, on our own understanding. See, understanding is in contrast to heart. Now, understanding is a cognitive word. That means that heart must also be understood as a cognitive concept, not an emotional concept and not a volitional concept. There are a few places where heart does seem to have an emotional context, and there's a few places where it has a volitional context, but about 95% of the uses of the word heart in the Old Testament have to do with the thought processes of a man. So we're to think in terms of what God has revealed to us about himself, his character, and we're not supposed to lean on our own understanding. Now, the word that is translated lean here has the idea of putting uh, <clears throat> our, our depending upon something that is uh, weak or wobbly, something that is unstable, leaning, uh, for example, using a weak branch for a crutch, and as soon as we put our weight upon it, then it collapses and we fall over. That is the idea here. Our understanding, our human viewpoint understanding, is based on limited knowledge. It's based on limited uh, perception just of our either human experience or human reason, and it doesn't take into account all of the facts. It doesn't take into account all of the data that can be known. The only one who knows everything is God, and our knowledge compared to God's knowledge is like one grain of sand compared to all of the grains of sand throughout all of our planet and every other planet in, in the solar system and beyond. In other words, we know less than one one billionth of one percent of all that can be known about whatever factors are going on in our life. And yet, on the basis of our own arrogance, we think we know so much from our limited experience and limited knowledge that we think we can extrapolate to the to a right decision without depending upon God. And so we, as a human race, have devised various forms of uh, <clears throat> various ways of thinking, various thought systems, various philosophies of life. And so we depend too much on 
the thoughts of man. We lean upon our own understanding. But the contrast here is one of 100%. We either trust exclusively in the Lord. It's not 90-10 or 80-20 or 60-40. It's trusting 100% in the Lord with all of our heart and not leaning at all on our limited understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a role for our thought system. God doesn't want us to just be empty robots. We think, but we have to think in terms of the framework of the wisdom of Scripture, not in terms of the wisdom of the world. So God's not saying don't think. He's saying think, but not on the basis of human viewpoint accepted uh, ideas and opinions, but upon the Word of God. Going back again to uh, the proverb that says, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. The way that seems right to man is human understanding, human discernment. We're, we're not supposed to lean upon that human uh, viewpoint or human understanding. Then in the next verse, in verse seven, uh, verse 6, rather, expands our understanding uh, a little bit more. It takes the thought from trusting in God to a further step of knowing him. The Hebrew word that is translated acknowledge him is the basic word is yada, which just simply means to know. And it's, uh, it's used here in a form that means to know God. And so it's not unlike the use of the word knowledge for God back in Proverbs 2, verse 5. There we read that if we meet the first set of conditions in verse four, uh, verses 1 through 4, where we're seeking the word, then the result is that we understand the fear of the Lord, and we will find or discover the knowledge of God. You can only discover the knowledge of God or know God personally if you are seeking truth, seeking his word uh, fully. And so this is the result. In all of our ways, we know God uh, is a better way of putting it, although a lot of uh, most of your translations uh, translated as acknowledge. It has more to do with knowing God so that our knowledge of him and the way God thinks through his word permeates all of the areas of our life and all of the de- categories of decisions that we make. That is, so it's, it's more than just acknowledging him, which has the idea of sort of, of, of admitting that he's in control or confessing his sovereignty. Uh, it is in all our ways we know him. In other words, our knowledge of him is impacting every area of our life. And what's the result of that? That's the last part of verse 6. He will direct our paths. He will smooth out our way is uh, one way to understand the Hebrew here. He smooths out our path. So our when we look at life, and all of the different things that have happened and things that can happen or could happen, what we see here is that that no matter what decisions we make, as long as our overall focus is on applying the Word of God to our life, even when we make bad decisions or let's just not bad in the sense of, of immoral or wicked or uh, disobedient decisions, but even when we make decisions that could have 
unpleasant circumstance, uh, unpleasant consequences. God is the one who straightens out our path and goes before us. He protects us. He guards us from those negative consequences, and he guides and directs our lives in an unseen way. So the key, though, is that we have to put our focus upon him and our attention upon him. This is why uh, the one who trusts in him is uh, blessed, Jeremiah seventeen seven. Blessed is the man who trusts, batach again, trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is in the Lord. Another verse in one of my favorites where uh, the same word batach is used in Psalm 56, 3 and 4, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. We have uncertainties in life. We don't know what this afternoon will bring. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We, we often think that things will continue in the future as they have in the past, but there are all sorts of things that can change that. Often God surprises us because he needs to take us through a little training process, and we never know what may occur tomorrow. So when we often fear, we put our focus on the circumstances of life, but what we need to do instead is to have our confidence and security in him and not in the details of life. Uh, Psalm 91.2, another verse. He is my, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. In contrast, we're not to trust in human sources of strength. How much money we have in our 401k plan, how much money uh, we have in the bank, our job, our career, uh, our education, these are not to be our ultimate sources of confidence. We are to trust in the Lord, not put confidence in man. Then verse 7 comes back with another positive command. Do not be wise in your own eyes. In other words, don't think that you ultimately can understand and interpret the details of your life apart from God. Don't think that you have a handle on life. Don't be wise in your own eyes. It's self-absorption. We live in one of the most narcissistic cultures that has probably ever existed in human history with maybe one or two exceptions. But it won't be long before we surpass those exceptions. We are full of ourselves. We think we know it all. We think that that our culture, especially in the United States, uh, in certain areas, that, that our beliefs, our standards are better than anyone else's in any other period in time to the degree that we are ignoring history to our own uh, detriment. Uh, we are glad that we don't know history. Why do we need to know anything about what happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago? We are we are better than anyone who has gone before. Who cares that socialism has never, ever worked in history? We're so bright and capable, we can make socialism work in our culture because we are better than everybody else. So we're living in this age of, uh, of hyper-narcissism and hyper-self-centeredness. Uh, and in contrast, the scripture says we're not to be wise in our own eyes. In contrast, we are to do two things, a positive and a negative. We are to fear the Lord. We're to fear the Lord. The concept of fearing the Lord means that we take God seriously. We recognize that the disobedience to God will bring horrible consequences into our life. We fear the Lord. It's more than simply respect. 
but it is, and, and it's more than awe, but it is, it is all of that plus uh, a healthy fear of what the consequences will bring because we're disobedient to God. So positively, we fear God, which is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1, 7. And on the other hand, we are to shun evil. It's not just fearing God. We are to shun evil. We are to avoid evil. We are not just to think as some people do, well, I'll just give in now. I can always confess a sin later and be forgiven. No, we do two things. We fear God on the one hand, and we avoid evil on the other hand. The result is it will be a health to our uh, flesh as the um, King New King James translates it. However, the idea in the Hebrew is really uh, it will be health to our navel, the very center of our of our being. It will be uh, health to our navel and strength to your bones. The bones relate to the skeletal, that which gives form and shape and structure to our health, to our life, to our bodies. So we are not to be wise in our own eyes on the one hand. The result of that, when we fear God and shun evil, is it brings health to us. Now, this is not a health gospel. This is often in Scripture, uh, health uh, terms are used to describe the uh, negative consequences of sin in, a, in people's lives because sin has, uh, has brought mortality into human experience. Sin has, has brought sickness and disease. So these are often used because they are the, as a figure of speech, for the result of, of, of sin. And so health is often used as a, a metaphor figure for uh, salvation and spiritual strength. And so when we uh, humble ourselves under the hand of God and we fear him, then the result is spiritual strength of vitality and physical uh, strength as well for carrying out God's plan for our lives. Verse 9 brings us to another level. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. This just takes us back to the Levitical offerings. Remember, this is written in the Old Testament period under the Mosaic Law. And so the command, one of the offerings that were brought uh, to the temple were the offering of first fruits. The Leviticus 2.12 and 14 uh, give descriptions of this. If you are offering the first fruits, that's the beginning, the initial produce of the crop. Remember, it was an agricultural uh, society. And so when the crops came in, the initial part of the harvest was then taken to the temple and given to God. The offering of the first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar uh, for sweet aroma. Verse 14, if you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten uh, from full heads. So this is the, the initial uh, result of your work and effort, recognizing that all of we, all that we have, all that we earn, ultimately is under the control of God. So we honor him with our possessions. All that we have is his uh, with the first fruits of our increase. What's the result is that God oversees our, our finances. God oversees our prosperity. Now, in the Old Testament, this was very concrete. In the Old Testament, God made specific promises to Israel 
that if they were obedient to the law, God would prosper them. If they were disobedient, then God would bring economic disaster. Those issues related to Israel do not carry over into the New Testament. Uh, God does not mark your spiritual life today. There are no promises to the church that the degree of your health or, or the degree of your material prosperity is related to your, to your uh, spiritual health. That's not part of the New Testament package. Why? Because part of it is because under the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit at all. They don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the filling of the Spirit. They don't have any of those uh, spirit-related dimensions to their spiritual life so that all of the criterion that's given to them for their obedience to God are related to very concrete material things. If you're obedient to me, there will be rains in due season. If you're disobedient, there will be drought. If you're obedient to me, there will be victory on the battlefield. If you're not obedient, there will be defeat on the battlefield. The ultimate causative factor were spiritual factors, not other factors. Uh, related to Israel being a nation before God. But in the church age, there's no nation of God anymore. There's the church made up of believers scattered throughout all nations. And so these are not um, na- the kind of national principles that you had in the Old Testament. There are general principles that are true here, as I've stated. These are proverbs, not promises, that if we are obedient to God and follow biblical principles of a work ethic, savings, uh, giving to the Lord, then because we are following those biblical mandates of wisdom with regard to our finances, then we will uh, be financially healthy. Uh, exceptions would be if we're living in a time when we have national leaders that are making uh, bad decisions, and as a result of their bad decisions, they are corrupting the value of the national currency, which is what's been happening in most Western nations in the last uh, uh, 50 to 60 years, and when the currency is debased, then you have inflation and you have, um, uh, you know, you run up enormous deficits like we have of $15 trillion or $16 trillion, and this is em- eventually going to lead to economic disaster for everyone in the country, believer or unbeliever, unless you're wise enough to set aside for the future. And trust me, now is the time when we should be preparing for a future because all of the signs that uh, that we have the enormous indebtedness the the uh, irrationality among our legislators to rein in spending and uh, the uh, over t- the, the seeking of a solution in taxation historically has always led to financial collapse and financial disaster there's only one thing that's going to get you through, and that's your relationship to God, not your savings, not anything else that you do in terms of, of finances. It's going to be your relationship to God. That's what we keep hearing again and again in Proverbs is we have to always prepare for future calamity, and that only comes and ultimately comes by preparation in our souls. And then finally in Proverbs three eleven and 12, uh, the command is, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Here it's the word uh, which indicates disciplined instruction. So the instruction isn't random. It's disciplined. It's organized. It, it puts discipline upon the life of the uh, individual believer. 
And when the believer is disobedient, then there is rebuke, there is correction, there's punishment. That's the meaning of the word translated correction, nor detest his correction. Now, why? Because when we are being disciplined by the Lord and undergoing divine correction, then that indicates God's love for us. That's the blessing. Uh, the blessing is that God has... Uh, is overseeing our lives, and as our Father, he loves us enough to discipline us and to guide us and uh, to direct us in order to make sure that we learn our lessons and grow to uh, spiritual maturity. C.S. Lewis, in one of his works dealing with the problem of pain and suffering, drew the conclusion that when we complain about our sufferings, We are not asking God for more love. We're asking him for less love. I thought that was an interesting perspective. God loves us. He will discipline us and reprove us and correct us. That is verse 12. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. The same word that's used at the end of verse 11. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Correction and discipline is a sign of love. Less discipline, less correction is a sign of less love. More correction, more discipline is a sign of more love. That has application both to parenting as well as how we think about uh, the suffering, the adversity that God takes us through in this life as he's training us for our future destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to once again be challenged by the writer of Proverbs to make a decision. Are we going to live our lives on the basis of our own finite understanding? or Are we going to submit to you, to your word, and trust in you above all things? Father, we know that there is no life apart from Jesus Christ and that we are all born spiritually dead and the only solution to that problem of spiritual death is the substitutionary payment that Jesus Christ made on the cross. We need to recognize that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And when we believe that, when we trust in him, we have the promise of Scripture that at that instant we are born again. We become a new creature in Christ. We're given eternal life that can never be taken from us. And we enter into your family. And as members of your family, we are going to be disciplined, we're going to be corrected by you as a loving father seeking to uh, train us, to discipline us, that we might uh, focus more uh, completely upon your word and upon your uh, sufficiency in our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, for everybody's sins. There's no sin that was not paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So the issue is no longer sin, no longer what we have done. The issue is our belief in Christ, trusting in him. Scripture says salvation is simple. It is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in him for your salvation and you have everlasting life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied this morning, that we might recognize that our choices have consequences, 
and we need to be uh, committed to you as you correct us and lead us and guide us in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our uh, closing hymn. Uh, what's our closing hymn? A Mighty Fortress. A Mighty Fortress is our God. That's number what? I've lost the sheet. Three. Three. Twenty-six. 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 Please stand. A Mighty Fortress is our God. Then I'm going to ask Doug Karn to come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are the sovereign creator of the universe and all of the, all that is creation. And as such, even our daily existence is a grace gift from you. We thank you for this grace gift. We thank you for the provision of your word that we may grow in your, your the knowledge of your paths and that we will know the correct paths to take and the, that we know right from wrong and we know your plan for our lives. Father, challenge us with the things that we've heard today, that we may grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.